I want you to find two places in the scriptures, all right? Hang on just a minute, David. Find two places in the scriptures. Isaiah 53, okay? That's going to be to the right of the middle, all right? And Luke 24. We're going to tie these two scriptures together. David? David? Good. I, I wasn't thinking about us having new, new people on this kind of a funny day, so wonderful. Man, wonderful. Welcome, pal. Okay. Yeah. I, just tell him we do this every week, and we'll see how it goes for the first month. All right. I think Jim and Fonda would totally leave us if we said we're going to eat every week. Okay. Now, there's a phenomenon in the business world and kind of in other areas, but I think of it in the business world, called scapegoating. You ever heard of it? You ever been the victim of it? Or you ever been a part of it? Uh, where um, somebody either resigns under fire or gets fired and for maybe the next year, anything that goes wrong, you blame it on the guy that just left. Uh, you know, well, it's, you know, it was Larry. You know, yeah. You know, we would have gotten that done well, except, well, you know, Tom. Okay, so, all right. So, you kind of know the issue. Well, it's interesting to me that the scapegoat concept comes from the Bible. On the Day of Atonement every year in the, in the nation of Israel, uh, one of the high priests, or the high priest, would lay his hands on a goat, on the head of a goat. He'd confess the sins of the people. And then he'd release the goat into the wilderness. And they, that's where that term came from. He, was, he literally escaped, and they called him the, the scapegoat. They placed their sins on the goat, and he trots off in the wilderness. I find that really interesting. On the same day, uh, another goat would be offered uh, for the sins of the people as a sacrifice, as a, as, as a, uh, a living sacrifice. Now, now I, you know. All things being equal, I guess I'd rather be the scapegoat but, um, than the one that, that uh, got his throat slit. But, but um, this is kind of woven through the fabric of Old Testament history. The concepts of transfer of guilt and the sacrificial shedding of blood, we've kind of got to get our minds around in order to understand what Jesus did for us on the cross. Okay? Now... So we're going to go to my favorite chapter in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And um, what we kind of need to know, we looked at it a few weeks back. We looked at a couple of the early chapters in Isaiah, which talk about this child that's coming to be the Emmanuel king. Uh, the latter half of the book, though, presents the Messiah as a suffering or uh, suffering servant or just as a servant. There, there are several servant songs that are there, and we're going to look at what I believe, at least, to be the most important of those today. Some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah the prophet um, makes some bold and detailed predictions about the life of the Messiah and the work and, uh, and the kingship of the Messiah. Interestingly, though, what he presented to them, even though they read about it and kind of wrangled with it, they didn't like what they read there, and many of them just kind of didn't accept it. Um, who would want to be who would be attracted to the suffering servant Messiah 
that Isaiah presents in the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah. And so when Jesus literally is doing those things here on the earth, there are many who follow along that line who, uh, and, and that we'll see kind of depicted in some ways in our scripture for today. Bob, would you mind to go to Isaiah 53, read verse 3 down through 8. Not a pleasant picture, is it? Now, by the way, one of the things that you can do if you're interested, and we'll talk about this kind of at the end of the hour today, but uh, if you're interested in apologetics at all or interested in, um, in, in witnessing to folks who, who don't believe the Bible, one of the things you can do is read this passage without telling them where it comes from and say, what's that talking about? What would your answer be? Talk about the cross of Christ, right? Would it surprise you to know that that was written 700 years before it took place? Uh, you know, you get to thinking about it. One of the things we're doing in this series is trying to tie the prophecy of Old Testament to how it came true in Jesus or how it came about um, to fulfillment in Jesus. Now, Isaiah paints a literal horrific picture of um, the one who hung on the cross. Now, I don't, if you were here for the Good Friday services a week ago, uh, a, week, a little more than a week ago, uh, they used some scenes there uh, from uh, the Passion of the Christ. And uh, I noticed as I walked in, there were warnings that there would be some graphic video. Um, it's interesting, as we look at Isaiah 53, Isaiah warns us. He says, when this happens, there will be people who will turn their face away. You catch that? Like one... As uh, like one from whom we hid our faces, he says. Now, by the way, Isaiah 53, and then, I, I, I don't want to, uh, if, if you need something, and by the way, this is a good mental health um, uh, exercise too. Way back in the day, over a Lenten period, and this is probably 20 years ago, I decided to memorize most of this portion down to probably verse 7 or 8. And I memorize it out of the King James. So uh, a lot of times the language that I remember is, um, you know, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. For he shall grow up from among him like a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Okay. He hath no form nor comeliness. Okay. All that stuff. But, but it's really good for me. I didn't understand, I don't think, Isaiah 53 until I began to memorize this language. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. Uh, 
scripture memory, memory of any kind, but particularly scripture memory, is very good. I wish Richard Smith was here. I would ask him. It's very good for your mind. It's a good insulation against uh, things that might happen to you even physiologically. Uh, And I can't think of anything better to memorize than the scripture, can you? Now, he's going to say here that you can't stand to look at this. And he's going to give us uh, at least five things here that I wanted to lift out that are going to be true of this suffering servant. Ready? First of all, he's despised. That means that those in his day will at one point lose all respect. Now, can you imagine that? But that's what happened. Second, he was rejected, excluded from the community, rejected. This ought to make us sad. The one who included everyone else, the one who said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. The one who included robbers and tax collectors and prostitutes was himself excluded. Wow. So he was rejected. Secondly, he was not esteemed. That kind of goes along with despised. He was not esteemed. Now, important for you and me possibly... If you've gone through something lately that you would call suffering. If you've gone through anything in your life that would qualify as grief. The Bible is going to tell us that he is a man who is acquainted with sorrow. Acquainted with grief. Now I don't know about you. That brings me some comfort. When I go to him and say, Lord, this hurts. You ever say that to him? It just hurts. Do you know that when he comes back to you and says, I know. He really can say that. There is no, uh, according to Hebrews 4.15, there's no pressure, there's no temptation, there's no sorrow, there's no sadness that he didn't experience to the full. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, it says. And last, uh, the last one is he's acquainted with grief. He's familiar with the NIV. If you were looking at the NIV, it's going to say he's familiar with pain. Larry and I were talking a little bit about earlier this week about his mother and her kidney stone. And literally, as you were describing that to me, because I've been concerned about her anyway because of her cancer treatment. It made me go, <clears throat> because I've had seven kidney stones myself. And I remember how awful it was. The first one I had, you prayed for death. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, um, I, and I literally, I was in, in Michigan doing a, doing a meeting years and years ago. I had to lead all week with this kidney stone. I don't know what I said all week. I was, uh, I was on pain medication and lots, drinking lots of water. And I had this goat head in my kidney. I mean, literally, when, it, when I finally passed the thing, they showed it to me. And if you look at it under a microscope, it looks like a goat head. No wonder it was so painful, Larry. So when you describe that to me, I can empathize from the standpoint of, oh, it's, I just don't want her to have to go through that. The Lord is familiar with pain. He gets it. 
He understands. Okay, now, what I've got to understand, though, uh, in fact, before, uh, on my outline, you might want to do this as well. Right before that little, um, that little dot there, the little um, um, dot before I put verse 4, put the word but right there and underline it. He's familiar with all that pain, but the pain and the suffering of the Messiah are not of his own making. You ever been in the company that I've been where you hear about somebody going through something really horrible? And our natural reasoning is to say, I wonder what he did. Um, you ever done, and I don't want to make this trite at all, but have you ever been at lunch or dinner with somebody and they say something that's just a little bit sacrilegious and you scoot over a little bit and say, Lord, don't miss? Okay? Right? Isn't it interesting that looking on the cross, people would think, I wonder what he did. I wonder what he did. Isn't it interesting that one of the two thieves was able to acknowledge he didn't do anything. We did. (laughs) So his suffering was not of his own doing. And literally, he suffered because, in verse 5, of our iniquities. Can we, I want us to look at three verses of Scripture if we can. Would somebody get Romans 5.1? Thank you, Wayne. Uh, Ephesians 2.14. Did I see, did I see a hand? Uh, no, okay, here we go. Thanks, Sally. Uh, Ephesians 2.14, and then 1 Peter 2.24. Thank you, Jan. Okay, now let's. Um, I, I want us to look at these in a minute because they're going to talk about why Jesus went to the cross. But I want us to think here. I'm going to read verse five uh, again in a, in a in a manner in which I think we've got to um, we've got to come to terms with it. The emphasis in these verses has to be on the word "us" and "we." Listen to five. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Do you catch the emphasis there? It's not that he it's not his guilt that put us on put him on the cross. It's mine. And yet, they looked at him, smitten of God, and afflicted. Could it be any more scandalous? All right, let's read these that talk about why he went to the cross. Romans 5.1. For our peace. For our peace. We're going to continue that idea. Ephesians 2.14. Literally on the cross, he takes down the barrier that stood between me, between you and God. And in some ways, between us and each other. Okay, one more passage. 1 Peter uh, 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might be 
Isn't it interesting that Peter quotes Isaiah 53, 5? He bore our sin, our guilt in his body on the tree. So when we get to verse 6, by the time we get there, it's the idea that God lays upon him our guilt. Now he uses the metaphor. He begins to talk about sheep here. The, the metaphor of sheep are used a lot in scriptures. But in this one, it's the idea that we are like sheep. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the King James, it's going to say, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, comma, everyone, comma, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the guilt of us all. It's the idea that the, the caring, loving shepherd has um, his back turned upon by a sheep that is wayward and just decides to wander off. Would Jesus understand that metaphor? Read John 10 when he talks about being the good shepherd. Read other places where he talks about bringing the one lost sheep back into the fold. Yeah, he understands it. Okay? But I want to read to you verse 7 again. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that's silent before her shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, before Pilate, it has what um, one writer that I read this week called, and this is what goes in your blank, a docile dignity about it. I absolutely love it. He has a docile dignity. He wasn't pushing back. He wasn't getting defensive. He had every reason to be, didn't he? In fact, Pilate got so frustrated with it, he would say, why don't you defend yourself, man? His life needed no defense, did it? And so he stands before his accusers with a docile dignity. Now, the focus shifts from a guilty sheep who has wandered astray to a sacrificial lamb, the sheep before her shearers that is dumb. And in verse 8, we get a little bit of a summary. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away as for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Uh, it's just kind of a, kind of a uh, summary verse there. Uh, the idea is that on the cross, a perverted justice takes place. Now, I want you to venture with me to Luke 24. Let me set the stage just for a minute. We're not going to be able to read the whole story, so let me tell you some of the story. Luke 24, it's, um, it's Sunday afternoon, East, the first Easter Sunday, okay? And there are some folks who've been celebrating Passover. They're going back home. It's a bit of a walk to the town of Emmaus, and there's a couple of men and maybe their families, but at least a couple of men that are talking about the events of the weekend. And they're talking about a rumor that they've heard that uh, maybe, just maybe, Jesus has come back to life. The women have said they saw the empty tomb. And, uh, and one of them even says she encountered him. Um, a couple of them are saying an angel appeared to us. You know, all those stories, right? And so they're going back home. You know, they've left a roast in the oven. They've got to go back and check it. And um, uh, they're going back home talking about this, and as they do so, all right, on the Emmaus Road, which, by the way, this story is only told in the Gospel of Luke, which I find intriguing. Was Luke one of those guys? I don't know. It's just a wonderful story, isn't it? They are sad, discouraged, with just a 
as my granddaughter would say, a tiny bit of hope. Could he really be alive? Jesus begins to walk with them. <laughs> How would that be? <laughs> but they're prevented from recognizing him. Okay? He says, what are you guys talking about? And they begin to tell him. Now, uh, when they talk about, oh, man, where have you been? You know, what rock you've been hiding under? They, <laughs> literally, I've been behind a rock, but okay. Um, that you don't know what's going on. The Messiah was put to death. But we've heard that he might be alive. All right? Now, uh, let's go to verse 25 through 27. Bob, I'm going to prevail on you one more time, can I? Luke 24, verse 25, 6, and 7. Hang on, man. I think you're in the wrong chapter. I think you might be in 23. Go to Luke 24. Bob never does that. I, I, put, I, was, I put pressure on him there. 24, we're going to start with verse 25. Here's what Jesus answers them as he's talking about, as they're talking about, you know, what happened to the Messiah. There's sadness. You find it? Good. We can hang on right there, Bob. I may have you come back here, but hang on right there. All right, now, Jesus immediately hears him talking, and he calls them foolish. You catch this? How foolish are you people? Uh, why is he saying that? I've told you, and the prophets told you, that the Messiah would suffer. But you didn't hear it. You're prevented from seeing it. Now, what I find is intriguing about this is that his first words to them, besides saying, what are you guys talking about, is uh, a rebuke. You are foolish, okay? But they don't get mad at him, do they? Why, how do we know that? He, they invite him to stay for dinner. Now, can you imagine walking for a couple of hours with the risen Savior? Now, you've got to put yourself in this place. Can you imagine not knowing that you were walking with the risen Savior? They didn't. They were kept from it. Can you imagine how you would feel later? We're going to see their description of that later. But he confronts them in saying, you know what? The fact that this Messiah went to the cross was predicted long, long time ago. And he begins to talk to them and reason with them from the scriptures. Uh, do you think he had a Bible in his hand? No, I don't think so. But he knows, the, he knows the book of Isaiah because he's the subject of it, right? And, and they begin to think, well, you know, you're right. 
Uh, it makes me wonder if at some point along the way they thought, boy, this guy's really smart. He really knows the Old Testament. And so they invite him to dinner. In, um, at dinner, um, at dinner, they invite him to stay with him. At dinner, they ask him to bless the bread, which I think is kind of a cool thing. And literally, as he breaks the bread, and who knows, I've read lots of stuff on this. Is it the formula that he used in the breaking and blessing of the bread? They'd heard it before. In Matthew, it's recorded for us in Matthew 5 and the feeding of 5,000. Uh, maybe they'd heard about it from the Last Supper. Is it that? Or is it as he raised his hands to break the bread? There's something different about these hands. What's different about them? They're nail pierced. Wow. And he leaves their presence. So they go running back to Jerusalem. They turn the oven off on the roast. And they go running back to Jerusalem and say, guys, guys, I think we've seen him. Uh, uh, I think he is alive. And while they're talking to them, he shows up in the room. What a story. If this were only a story, it's a great story, but it's not a story. It's true. He shows up in the room. Now, Bob, go back to that chapter, if you will, and read verse 32 to us. 32? 24, 32. Um, a couple of nights recently, um, <laughs> uh, I made brisket for, for um, Easter lunch last week, you know, and I ate, I ate way too much last, last Sunday. And then, you know, have you ever done, John, have you ever done this? You ever put brisket on your nachos a couple of days later? Whew, that's kind of hard to beat, man. And, um, um, but I remember a couple of times lately, about 2 o'clock, I find myself in the kitchen, not for a snack, but for a spoonful of bicarbonate of soda. <laughs> you ever found yourself in that place? We don't keep Tums at our house. So, okay, bicarbonate of soda, ate too much or too late or both. What I've got is what is known as heartburn. And what Bob read about is a description of spiritual heartburn. In fact, looking back, as he talked to them and reasoned with them and taught them the scriptures, what a Bible study. And they said, you know, looking back at that, as they're describing it to Peter and James and John and all the other, rest of the 12 and probably several hundred that are gathered there, they're saying, man, our hearts were on fire while he was talking. We needed bicarb. They didn't say that. They wouldn't know anything about that. But weren't our hearts on fire. Well, I want us to read four more verses. Go to verse 44, same chapter. Now he said to them, this is a, a different appearance later on. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. By the way, if you want to write it down, we'll be in, in Deuteronomy 6 next week and Matthew 4. That's what we're doing in this series, trying to tie the Old Testament to the New. 
Okay? Now, he says, weren't all these things, I've, I've told you about this before. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Isn't that beautiful? You know what he did for us to help us under, understand the scripture? He opened our minds by giving us the Holy Spirit to help us understand. I don't have any excuse for not getting it. Because the Holy Spirit is standing behind me when I ask him to. And he's allowing me, to, he's showing light on the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and would rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, what I think they're learning here is something that you and I have to learn. That is, we have to begin to look at the Scriptures from a Christian understanding. Okay? I run up against this all the time. You and I need to have a distinctly, a clearly Christian view of the Scriptures. Okay? I think we have a tendency to look at the Old Testament on its own. It, you know, in, the, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training train righteousness. I get that. And I'm not saying it's not not healthy or not good, but what I am saying is, when I read the Old Testament, I've got to look at it through the lens of the New Testament, not the other way around. I think sometimes we try to make the New Testament harmonize with the Old Testament, and really what we need to be doing is harmonizing the Old Testament with the New. Um, One of my favorite uh, subjects is the uh, um, 18th century hymn writer Isaac Watts who wrote lots of the music that you've heard over the last couple of weeks. Um, um, uh, wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Is there any more beautiful, lang- uh, in the English language, any more beautiful poetry? Um, uh, Watts, when he came into the church, the church, the English church, didn't sing um, Anything but scripture, in particular the Psalms. So literally it can be said that before Watts, English-speaking churches sang the Psalms. After Watts, they sang hymns. Most of the songs that we sing today would never have happened without the influence and the work of Watts. And literally it happened because Watts' poetry was just so good they couldn't ignore it. They literally kept bumping their heads up against it because it was just so good. And they had to use it. Um, so Isaac Watts uh, had an idea that if, if we use the Psalms, for instance, they ought to have a Christian meaning to them. So it was interesting in his day, many of his English colleagues couldn't recognize these translations. Joy to the world is actually a, um, uh, a, a paraphrase of Psalm 98. You might read it there and say, well, what do you mean? Uh, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun uh, is, a, is, a, is um, from Psalm 72. Or, O oh God, our help in ages past is uh, from Psalm 90. Um, um, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That's kind of the start of that. And he says, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Um, he just thought, really, if you were going to sing the Psalms, which all English churches were doing, you ought to do it through the lens of the New Testament. Well, you and I have benefited from that. Back in 1925, the Scopes trial 
received widespread attention because uh, it became a referendum on the merits of the theory of evolution. Some saw it as a contest between the Christian belief and atheism. The great attorney on the evolution side was Clarence Darrow. You've heard that name. Perhaps the most celebrated lawyer of his day, maybe of history. Less remembered are the two later debates that involved Darrow in the 1930s. His opponent was a guy by the name of P.H. Wellsheimer. He was a minister of the First Christian Church in Canton, Ohio. Darrow had debated many people on the merits of the Christian faith, and his great intellect served him well. His opponents were usually not prepared to meet his challenge. Wellsheimer, however, employed a tactic that Darrow had not encountered before. Wellsheimer focused on the unity of the Bible as a book of prophecy as he laid out some of the wondrous prophecies of the Old Testament that found fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Darrow literally had no answer. You could take three or four or five of the predictions about Jesus from the Old Testament and how they came true in his life. And it's just kind of hard to argue with, Darrow said. We want to continue to deal with this. But I want to say to you that the suffering servant who hung on the cross for your sins and mine did so as predicted. His own contemporaries somehow missed it. You and I dare not miss the meaning of it. Hey, on your way out today, thank Jim and Fonda for pulling this together for us. Glad you're here. I'll see you next Sunday. God bless you.